Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Hi, everyone. Elaine and Diane here. And we know that you want your complex kids to grow up to be happy and independent. And yet you're not always sure how or when to help with that. In this podcast, we'll encourage you to collaborate with all kinds of complex kids and support them in navigating life and learning. And we'll interview leading experts from around the world, as well as parents in our own community, talking about how training for parents actually helps these complex kids. We'll talk about the issues we hear parents struggling with all the time and how a coach approach can support and empower your amazing young people. We won't tell you what to do. We're going to help you figure out how. So let's move on to the next conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. I am even more super excited than usual today, because today we get to have a conversation with two spectacular human beings. I am welcoming to the show, Laura Patey, who is the Dean for Academic Advancement at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, which is my alma mater and is also my middle child's alma mater. And I am also welcoming to the show today, my middleist, Sydney Taylor-Klaus, who is a graduate of the class of 2020 at Wesleyan. And we are going to be talking today about kids in college advocating for themselves and in high school advocating themselves and the need to start sooner. And what prompted this conversation was Earlier this year, Sydney and I were finally able to go back to Wesleyan for her commencement two years after she graduated because of COVID. And we were having a conversation with Dean Patey, who has been an active part of Sydney's college career for many years, throughout those years. And we were talking about what a difference it makes when kids come to college ready to advocate for themselves. And when they understand what their challenges are and have the confidence to get the support they need and the difference that happens when kids come and they're still in denial of those challenges. And so we thought it would be really cool. And I I may have twisted a little bit of an arm, but I'm really excited to have a conversation about for you as parents about how do you talk to your kids and encourage them to advocate for themselves? And how do you start that sooner so that they're really ready to do that once they get to the university or college level? or whatever they're doing after school, because some of our kids may not be going on to college, but we still want them to be able to have a confident ownership of who they are and how their brain works so that they can use that confidently in the world. So that's how I want to set the stage for this conversation. Laura, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be doing academic advancement, because I know you've been on a path for this for a while. So glad to be here. Um, and thanks so much for the question. It is an interesting journey. And I have, am an educator at heart and was um, a teacher in the K-12 arena for a while and really worked very closely with students who had learning disabilities and attention issues and recognized that for many of those students as they were leaving, as they were graduating from high school, I would ask them, 
because I was teaching in a school that provided tremendous support for students, I would ask them if they understood what their needs were and what things we were doing that was making the educational experience more meaningful and positive for them so that they could, Mm -hmm. they would know to go and be able to ask for those things. And I actually had as a final exam in my class, you walked into my class and I'm your professor in college. Tell me what you, how you learn and what you need. Um, wow. I wanted students to be able to do that. And I know, I knew at that point how important that was for students to really be successful and to feel that success and to own that success because I was working with really bright and engaged students. So I had my own business for a number of years, providing educational consulting for young adults with disabilities um, and then got into higher ed. And I've been in higher ed for, for a long time. Um, I was in one of the first positions where accessibility was title um, and a director of accessibility for students with disabilities in a college and, and have been doing this work for, you know, probably over 30 years at this point. And so, you know, I come here because I have a, a firm belief in, in really helping students recognize their own capabilities and really mm-hmm realizing those successes. Um, and, And for students to do that, they really need to understand who they are, how they learn, and what they may need so that they can get the appropriate support wherever they are. Yeah. Well, so let me ask, there's so many directions I want to go here, but but just to clarify, when we first met you, you weren't the Dean for Academic Advancement. Where were you before this role? Yes, thank you very much. So I was the Associate Dean for Student Academic Resources. And so at the university overseeing all of the student support services that we had, which included some peer support services through academic peer advisors and tutors, as well as accessibility services for students with disabilities. I was given the opportunity to move into this role where I am now overseeing the class deans as well as overseeing student academic resources. And I still have my hands in doing accessibility services with a colleague on a day-to-day basis. I think I would never move into a position that took me away from that direct work with students because it's what I really enjoy is watching that development and transformation over four years in school where they really, you know, even if they come in as, as good self-advocates, just the development of their level of understanding and appreciation for um, the, the uniqueness and richness with which they, um, they learn and bring to the, to the community. And so that's where I am now. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you. And and it's such a, a privileged place for us to be able to have watched you move through. I think you were one of Sydney's first bosses um, when she was working in, in the university and disability services. So it's just been a, a pleasure to be part of this journey with you. Mm-hmm. So Sydney, what about you? I told you I wasn't going to just ask you what brings you to this conversation, but you and I've had a lot of conversations about your what makes you unique has made you unique as a student and your capacity to self-advocate without shame, without embarrassment, without self-judgment to really accept your challenges as well as really playing to your strengths. So what makes this conversation important for you or what brings you here? Yeah. So I think also, hi everyone, I'm Sydney. I think what makes me excited for this conversation is being able to share with parents, the kid's perspective And I have to say, I am one of those unique children who was raised by the coach approach for many years. Um, So I think I did enter high school and college with way more interest in advocating for myself than most of my peers. And with that, also seeing how that changed throughout time and how 
even though I thought I was going into college pretty good at advocating for myself, how much better I got with the support of accessibility services and Dean Patey and her other colleagues and just being able to share what it's like from a student perspective and how hard it can be to ask for help, even when you're good at it. So trying Mm -hmm. to give parents that perspective. And I think that's what I'm really excited about in this conversation, just to give them some context to all you listeners out there. I have dyslexia. I was diagnosed in second grade. So I've been working with teachers and professors and administration for accommodations since third grade. So it's, it's been a good bit of my life. And in high school, I would meet with, in middle school, I had a tutor that pulled me out of some classes to help me with reading. And then in high school, I took a study hall my first year to manage the the change in academic load moving to high school with the learning challenges, and then was able to go back to other electives the rest of high school. And then when I got to college, I actually met Dean Patey either during orientation week or that very first week of classes. Because I set up an appointment to sit down and figure out what do I need to do to get accommodations in college? And I know that they had those meetings through the first month of school. And I just happened to be in the very first week of them because I reached out and I advocated for myself. And I was able to, all of college, I met with every single professor within the first two weeks of classes to get set up for accommodations. So really running the whole gambit of learning how to ask for help. And even when I wasn't saying, hey, I need help, just saying, hey, in case I need help in the future, I just want to get established with you. So building those relationships. Absolutely. Laura, talk a little bit about what happens when the average kid comes to to university versus the, you know, the kid who's already self-advocating, because what really strikes me in what you said, Sydney, is that by that point, you were already clear that 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 was going to set you up for success. I had a, a professor once who told me, kids come to college as high school seniors, and then they come back after Thanksgiving break as college freshmen. So when they first start off, they're still high school seniors in their own mentality. So Laura, what's your experience of what happens when the kids get there in the first place? Um, great question. I think that the uh, an overlay that we need to keep in mind is also um, the developmental perspective. And so in terms of where young adults, teens and young adults are, is that um, with every fiber of their being, uh, they're wanting to be independent. And so if they have received received, you know, you know, really wonderful supports, even those students sometimes are like, I'm in a new environment and I want to try it on my own. And so they may be reluctant or hesitant. And so um, we have a couple of mechanisms that we use that to bring students in. So one is we ask about this before students arrive. And we ask this of all students who are coming into West. So that gives us a chance to really know who we should be seeing, because we ask them about accommodations they may have received in high school. And so students might share and then say, but I'm not sure. And we we honor that. We don't say, well, you have to. We honor where they are and say, but we'd still love to chat with you. And sometimes we might wait for that chat for a couple of weeks in when we know things might be getting a little bit more, a little busier than they anticipated. And And this might be a good time and they might be more amenable to thinking about accommodations. But the average student really doesn't have a good understanding of what it is they need. They have a very cursory understanding of the accommodations they've been provided, but not really an understanding of why those are in place, which is really limited 
thing because it's limited to whatever they've been given before. And we can think of a whole range of additional supports that may be appropriate. And that is, we're able to engage in that when we get involved in really an interactive process and discussion with a student. So for some students, we go back to the documentation that they bring. And I ask, has anybody ever gone through this with you? Has anybody ever shared this with you? And I don't do it from the perspective of I want to share what the challenges are. Because, And I say that right, straight out to the students. I say, you could tell me what's difficult. We already know those things. But what I want to show you are the strengths that are embedded in this profile as well, that I can already see in your profile, the things that I know you're good at. Because as human beings, we tend to dismiss those. We discount those because it's easy for us, right? And so for students to have an understanding of what they need, they need to know what's challenging, but they also need to know what tools they can use as potential workarounds. So for that student who's really you know, not very good at looking at charts and graphs and understanding information, we might say, well, the text that describes those charts and graphs may be far more helpful than looking at the graph itself. And, and they'll be like, oh, yeah. And so we say, don't worry about the chart and graph. Worry about understanding the prose that goes along with that. And the same, you know, the opposite is true for other students. The students yeah. who have difficulty getting meaning from the words can look at a graph or a chart and totally describe exactly what's being i'll say so you don't That's need to read that you can look at this and understand and those are the techniques and strategies that we want to help students understand and i'll be honest high schools can do a really good job of working through that and they put in place ways of helping students but they aren't explicit about it so they're not helping students really own those things. And if you were to say to a, a high school sophomore, you know, I can see that this is more challenging, but doing it this way is better for you and naming it, that would really empower students to be able to be able to uh, be a better self-advocate. Yeah, the metacognition of it is helping. Exactly. You said a little while ago, I think it's so powerful, which is they get there knowing what accommodations they've had, maybe, but certainly not knowing the purpose of those accommodations and, and why they needed them. So, And I want to invite you two to talk with each other. You don't need me throwing questions back and forth. And Sydney, based on what Dean Patey just said, um, what's coming up to me is, I'm curious if you can think back. Do you remember what happened in high school, either, whether it was from the school or from me or anything that set you up for understanding what you needed these accommodations for in the first place? Because that's really where it starts is helping our kids play to their strengths, understand their challenges and understand why they're getting accommodations. Well, one of the things that Dean Patey said that resonated a lot was when we get to college, we've had some accommodations that help with some things. And we have those, but if we go back to the document of why Dean Patey and Accessibility Services found me other accommodations that I had never even imagined. For example, mm -hmm. I had never done a Scantron test in high school, but when I got to college, I was in intro psych, which was a 160 person lecture, and I was faced with a Scantron test and it was terrifying. And I talked with Accessibility Services and we realized that through my diagnoses and my accommodations, I could take it on the test booklet and have the TA help copy it over into the Scantron form. And that was just like mind blowing of, yeah, that is what's stressing me out. I know the content. I know how to do the test. 
it's the mapping the answer to the other sheet of paper and filling in the bubble and not getting so fixated on making it perfect just to give one example and it was it's a great example yeah Yeah. and I think the other thing that you asked about is um in high school I think I had a really good sense of some of my accommodations and knew exactly why I had some of them but I didn't actually know why I had all of them and I think something that my high school did a great job of was not just saying a different testing room, but calling it a distraction reduced testing environment and calling it what it is, making it instead of just a thing, making it an explanation of the thing. And Wesleyan did that as well. It's not a separate testing room. It's a distraction reduced testing environment. And that can mean different things for different students. And that's something I love seeing is for me, I just needed to be not in a giant 160 person testing hall. I needed to be mm-hmm. in a small classroom with max like 10 students, but I could be around other people. Whereas right. other people probably needed an individual testing room based on their diagnoses. So I think giving a name that's a descriptive name was something that was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of those conversations, Sydney, that, that we might have with students, they might have a separate testing you know, location and they, they copy oftentimes in their request exactly what they were given before. And when we go to the documentation, we start talking about things that the high school was unable to provide. Um, mm. For example, we might say to a student, have you ever listened to your readings while you're reading them? Because we know that that improves reading rate and reading comprehension. And so we have a couple of different tools that can help you convert your text material so that you can listen to anything you want to, that you, that you need to read, but read along with it and showing students how some of these tools are built into the the phones and the and the laptops they're already using. They're not add-ons. They're really just there and available to them. Um, so it's really fun talking about the range of possibilities or, you know, especially when students need to do 300 pages of reading a week, you know, and, and they're trying to manage that. And how do you navigate that or note taking and how do you how do you mm-hmm. keep up with a class so you're not worrying about writing every word? You know, there are tools that students can use. There are live scribe pens or glean you know, as a, as a software package that we can provide students that allow them to capture the lecture, an audio of the lecture that's connected to their notes. So you can write one part of the, write the overarching phrase and then listen and be attentive and be present in class and then come back later and touch that part of the notes with your pen and it will replay that part of the lecture. So you can really fill in those pieces that are missing and it changes the way students then present in class. But some of this requires that students really understand that it's difficult for me to write my notes because I'm so worried about what I'm writing and I realize I've missed five minutes of what's been said because I was worrying about spelling something that I was trying to put in my notes. I have something that just came up from what Dean Payne was talking about my senior year, I was an academic peer advisor. So helping other students with things, a but I was also, I might add, <laughs> Thank you. Again? I said a wonderful one. I might add, <laughs> um, but I was also just a friend and one of my friends had a concussion our senior year. And I encouraged him to go to accessibility services and get some support. And he did, but before he did, 
I started showing him some of the accessibility tools that I knew about for academic accommodations for people with learning challenges that also worked for when he had a concussion and couldn't study in the same way he had been his whole life as someone that's mostly neurotypical. And he was mind blown at how much accessibility software there was out there. And when I showed mm -hmm. him one, he's like, okay, yeah, let me go to accessibility services. That's helpful. Um, so it was a really cool way to be able to share it and being an advocate both for myself and for other students as an academic peer advisor, I had learned a lot about what's out there, but I knew I still didn't know everything, but I knew how to connect people with where they needed to go. So that's just well, something that popped into my head. Well, it's brilliant. And, and what really jumps out at me is you got his buy-in, right? Yeah. You got his buy-in. You, you showed him something where he said, okay, I'm in, I want more. And so I want to go back for a minute to the parents listening whose kids are still in middle school or high school and who are struggling because, as you say, this is the age when the kids are individuating. They want to do it on their own. A lot of times when they hit 18, even if they've been using services, that's when they stop using them or they stop taking their medications. Really common. Uh, you know, I shouldn't need this. I can do it on my own. Right. Oh, I've and, gone and down so that path before. <laughs> that <happened laughs> before I can talk about that in a minute. Every kid around that age, I've, every parent of every kid, I've, has everybody does it, even the kids who are bought in. But so any concept or advice you've got for parents about how do you foster buy-in for kids who, who don't understand that the accommodations are really leveling the playing field, who don't understand that the accommodations really are fair, because they get this message from society that it's not fair, that you're getting special treatment, that, you know, so... What thoughts? Let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you what I say to students, um, because I meet with many students, especially students who are diagnosed while they're in college, right? Mm -hmm. Who have never had accommodations before, and I'll say to students, I really want to meet students where they are, because I think that that's important to hear them, to hear their concerns, and to really validate where they're coming from before I go in with any pitch. Or, or trying to convince them otherwise. Sometimes I'll just say, well, these are things that are available and I'd love to meet with you again in another week or two and see how things are going and we can talk more about this. Not like you have to do this. I really make sure that students understand that they're the ones in charge. Mm -hmm. um, but what I say to students is, you know, I say, I'm wearing these glasses. And I said, you know, it's really not fair because you're not wearing glasses. So I'll take my glasses off. And, and uh, I said, but you'll ask me to read something and I can't do it, but it would be unfair if I put my glasses on because you're not wearing glasses and that would be an unfair advantage. And, and they, they realize how ridiculous that is. And of course, you know, wearing glasses is not an unfair advantage. It's what you need in order to see. And mm -hmm. they can understand that. And as soon as they begin to understand that, they're like, oh, you have to do the work. You're responsible for doing all the work for these courses. What we're talking about is how you might do it differently, but faculty will still have expectations. You still need to take these tests. You still need to do the, the problem sets and write the papers, but how you might go about it might be different based on what your needs are. Mm -hmm. And so that is the entree and the conversation that I have with students. And, and you can see the light bulb go off and, the, and then the sort of sheepish grin that comes over because they understand that, of course, that's, you know, fairness is not giving everyone the same thing. Fairness is giving people what they need. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and for those of you listening who are in our community and in our programs, this is what we talk. We talk about taking a disability perspective at Sanity School and in the book. And, and what you're talking about is framing the concept of fair is not equal. Right? Fair, is not, fair is not the same. It's right? equity versus equality. And there's great pictograms of equality is you put everyone on the same stoop, but you're asking them to reach up for a bar and a little five-year-old isn't going to be able to reach what a six-foot tall person is going to reach. But uh, equity is when you put people on a stool that puts them at the same general height as everyone else. But you see it looking over a fence to watch a baseball game. Yeah, yeah. So believe I told you all this was going to go fast, right? And we have we have time to hit a few more things. But I do want to start sort of setting the expectation that, that we're going to start winding down soon. So what else have we not talked about that you feel like we should be talking about? What else is important? I think um, we sort of began to talk about it, um, but we didn't really spend a whole lot of time, is how important it is to start this early. These conversations can happen at age-appropriate levels from the very onset of a student receiving accommodations and supports, um, is sort of normalizing that it isn't an advantage or disadvantage, it's just different. And so by having that conversation as things progress throughout a, a child's educational program and trajectory, it just becomes more understanding. I often ask students, what are the barriers? What are the things getting in the way of access for you? And how do we ameliorate those barriers? And that becomes the frame of reference for for thinking about accommodations. It's about ameliorating the barriers to access. And so we want to figure out how to do that. And those barriers are going to change over time. And so I think that it's important to start early and to begin to have those conversations. I, you know, I'm also a parent of two young men now, both of whom received services all through school. And I wanted them and they were involved in their IEP meetings all the time. I wanted them to have a voice and to be prepared to participate. And it could be overwhelming with all of the adults in the room. But we would spend time getting prepared for those so that they could come in and just say, even if it's just what their preferences are about things, that they could feel like they had a voice and that we all wanted to listen to what they had to say. And then that we would, you know, might be talking more about some other things that we're going to put in place that might not understand in the moment we would go over later. But all from the very beginning, having them involved and it really proved to be an incredibly beneficial because it's a way of looking and framing things that doesn't put this as a deficit model, but really as a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, what I want to say to the parents listening who are thinking, oh, no, I should have done this so long ago right? Is I want to remind you that it's never too late. Never. And no matter how old your kids are or young adults are, I I was talking to a client yesterday who's a 40 something year old woman with ADHD about, and who had this realization yesterday that you're saying, how do we, what are the barriers? And one of the, we realized one of the barriers for her was when something's ambiguous. And so at 40 something years old, we began to realize, okay, so when it's ambiguous, it shuts you down. What do you need to do to make it clear how we break that down? And so it's never too late to start having these conversations and invite our kids or maybe ourselves to identify the barriers and and identify workarounds and ask for the help and support that we need. That's a lifelong experience for all of us. Right. 
I think um, one thing that I want to make sure that is said is this is a constant growth model. This is having learning challenges or learning differences or anything like that. You can't just fix it because you're not broken. It's not wrong. It's just different. And with that, you just get, you have the opportunity to learn how to process it and deal with it and live with it every step of the way. And I had accommodations and support my whole academic career. I've been very fortunate to have that. And that doesn't mean that I haven't been learning every single step of the way. Every new obstacle I faced, I get to find a creative way to overcome it. Well, and the other thing that really jumps at me as you're saying that, Sid, is that um, you're a consummate learner. Like you love to learn. And so part of what this advocating for yourself gave you was the capacity to use your strength, which is your deep curiosity, to motivate you Mm -hmm. to be willing to buy in and ask for it. And something to go with that is if you're a parent out there thinking, oh, but my child doesn't like to learn, that might not be true. They just might not learning in the format that they've experienced so far. For example, one of my siblings hates classroom learning, does not do well unless it's a topic they absolutely love. And when it's a topic they absolutely love, they thrive in the classroom. So it's really about finding what motivates your child because it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah, we'll put some resources in the links on that. And and the other thing you just made me realize that I I wanted to share is that some of our kids are going to go into college or university or or their first job ready to ask for what they want. And some of them are going to learn from the school of hard knocks. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take them a while to realize, and one of your siblings may or may not have been one of those students who figured out sophomore, junior year, oh, there's this thing called disability services. (laughs) Now, this is having been raised in an environment with me and with Sydney, and still, like, it took a certain amount of development to get to the point where that person was willing to say, okay, this is really what I need. So some of our kids are going to take longer than others to accept that. Dean Patey, anything on that you want to share? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, I really believe in a growth mindset. And, and I think that um, we need to, as I said before, we need to meet students where they are and recognize that that's fine because where they are is where they are. And we're going to look forward. We can look back at, to learn from those situations, but we don't dwell in the past. We move forward. So what's the next thing? Or how can we, how, how can we make this different if you're, if you're at a place where you, where you don't want to struggle as you have been, what things could change and move that. forward that way. Well, and I, I love that in part because what we talk about in terms of coaching is exactly that. We can learn from the past, but we're not going to dwell there. Coaching is a very present and future focused right. modality. And that's really what you're describing. So I told you this was going fast. I want to take a pause to to ask what resources you want to point parents to that might help them in encouraging kids to to advocate for themselves, and particularly in that transition from high school to college. What would you share? Well, one of the resources that uh, that I wanted to share um, is something that that we have on our Wesleyan um, website for families, for parents and families, that really talks about the differences between high school and college. Because I think that that framing of understanding the differences about expectations is really important. We're not unique. Um, Lots of schools and and organizations.
organizations put out similar kinds of charts and this information. But I think really understanding what some of those differences are might identify some new barriers that exist, like importance of managing time and, and organization when that's done inherently in a school day when school starts at 7.30 and goes until 2.30. What about if your first class is at 8.20 and your next class is at 4.10 in the afternoon and what happens in between? So looking at all of those things. So I think I would point toward that toward that chart. Well, what really jumps out, and I've got that in the show notes. So there's a Wesleyan uh, link to to all of the resources available. And and what jumps at me when I when you were sharing that with me earlier is that most schools that your kids are going to probably have a resource somewhere on their website about what kinds of resources are available for students at that university. And the, your student may not be thinking to look for it, but that doesn't stop you from looking for it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the other resources, I'll put some stuff in the show notes. There's there's a consultant we do some work with who specializes in in working with students with with neurodiversity. I'll put some links links to the motivation uh, articles that we have on the site there, um, and to some other stuff in Impact Parents. Anything else, Sydney, that you would encourage kids to look for off the top of your head? I'm putting you on the spot now. I think if you have a super aware child then encouraging them to look at what resources are available when they're looking at what college they might want to go to or apply to. If you don't have a student who's that actively engaged, I think um, giving them an opportunity, like developing that trust as a parent so they feel safe talking to you about these things, but giving them the opportunity to share what they might be worried about in college, what they might be worried about with the academics. And if they're able to share that with you, you can start thinking in the back of their your head resources that might help them in the future. So even if they're not ready to look for it, you can still help them a little bit in this transition period because transition is scary for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And happens over time. Mm-hmm. So before we sort of wrap this up with a with a favorite uh, motto or quote, which we'll get to, is there anything else either of you want to add from a sort of content perspective that you want to make sure that you either reiterate or that we haven't talked on yet, touched on yet? I think I would just talk again about um, the importance of meeting students where they are and listening to them. I think that um, we think a lot of time that students don't have understanding or insight or or thoughts about things. And it's because we don't necessarily make the space for them to do that. And so if we can create the space where your child can share with you or with others what they're thinking about or what they're concerned about or what they see as their own strengths and really begin to to take that in. I think that would be the thing I would want to reiterate. Beautiful. And Sydney, I heard you talking about looking, you know, sharing what they might be worried about. Anything else you want to add? I think we've covered it. Also, don't be afraid to listen again. You're going to learn more every time you listen to advice, things like these. I know I do whenever I find something that I'm like, oh, that resonated a lot. I'll go back and re-listen to it later because I know I'm not going to process it all the first time. Great. Awesome. So you guys have been fabulous and it was every bit the stupendous conversation I knew it would be. So thank you both. Let's wrap it up with a final motto, quote, something that you want to share with the listeners might be about this topic. It may be completely unrelated, but what do you want to leave us with today? Can I start? Yeah, you sure can. Awesome. Up until now, when you're, student, child, family member, peer, friend, anything is struggling with something. And they're saying like, I can't do it. It's not, you can't do it. You haven't been able to do it yet. 
you haven't been able to do it up until now or up until now you've struggled with this. I think it's a great mindset change of being able to say, you're still growing, you're still learning. Whatever you've been struggling with, you struggled with it up until now. What are we going to do to try to change that? Yeah. Will you share where, where you had that posted and during the process? Yeah. At some point over the last two years, my mom shared this advice with me and I picked up a random napkin, like a dinner napkin, paper napkin that was on the table. I grabbed a Sharpie and I wrote up until now. And I took two pieces of tape and I taped it up right above my desk where I was sitting to study for the MCAT and to apply to medical school. And all the struggles and the, I didn't study enough yesterday or I'm not doing well. It's up until now, I haven't been. What am I going to do to change that? Beautiful. That's wonderful. And Lara, what what do you want to leave us with? Uh, So one of the things that is a real guiding um, principle for me is is the belief in the the notion that success breeds success. Mm -hmm. And, and I truly believe that. And I, and I think that I have seen that over my many years in in doing this kind of work. And so I want to identify for students or individuals with whom I'm working, what those successes are. And, And I think that when we can, we really wrap our heads around those successes, it leads us to be willing to take on other challenges that may seem formidable. And, and, and we can really believe that success breeds success. I love that. And you guys listening will know now, you know why I love her so much, because that is one of my, one of the things I say all the time and it's all over sanity school is, is we got to play to their strengths, you know, help them with these kids need a success because success breeds success. Yeah. Love, love, love that you share that. (laughs) Once again, both of you, thank you for being here. Thank you for what you're doing for the work that you've done throughout your career and continue to do Laura um, to support students and in seeing their great capacity and seeing their strengths. And thank you for the work you did in helping my students see her strength and see her capacity. And Sid, thanks for being willing to to step in and let mom put you on the hot seat. Absolutely. Um, Happy to. Thanks so much. Be a model for other students. My pleasure. And to those of you listening, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Know that the end of the day, your conversations, building those relationships, building those trusts, the trust, building the collaboration, that's what sets your kids up for success. And that's what makes the difference. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Behavior therapy training for parents is actually recommended as a first-line treatment for complex kids. For information about Sanity School, our training program for parents or teachers, which has helped thousands of families around the globe, visit impactparents.com slash sanity school. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.